uh, in light of some of the most recent scholarship, archaeological discoveries, and things like that. Um, last week, just a quick reprise in case you weren't here, or if you're like me, you've slept since then, and your memory is not what it used to be. We were looking at uh, the overall shape of his ministry. Uh, remember we talked about Nazareth, a small little town up there, and it was near this uh, place that's been recently excavated called Sepphoris in the last few decades, and giving an insight in the fact that Nazareth may have not been a farming community, but really was a community related to Sepphoris and to the construction there, particularly in light of Jesus and Joseph both being described as tectons or people who did construction. Uh, we looked at some of the archaeological uh, digs, some of the recent <coughs> discoveries in terms of synagogues, got a pretty good idea of when Jesus goes to synagogues like at Capernaum and beyond. His family. Um, we have some evidence that his family may have traveled with him, particularly the early part of his ministry. His mother probably with him the entire time. And then two different sources tell us, but his, his family were not believers in him, or at least his brothers and sisters, at the time he was in doing his ministry. Later that would change. Um, looked at the synagogues in the area. Then we looked at three aspects of the ministry that we will begin looking at next week, which are uh, what we have traditionally called the miracles or the healing stories. Uh, looked at symbolic actions, and then the teaching ministry. We're going to look at all of those next week. And then, of course, we looked a little bit about his audience. Um, there's some mythology out there. The traditional mythology is that Jesus only went to the very, very poor. Uh, but once you begin to look at the stories in the Bible, uh, it's, a, it's a lot richer than that. So today what we want to do is begin a multi-week process of kind of looking at different aspects, different dimensions, of the ministry of Jesus. We're going to start where the Gospel of Mark starts. According to Mark, which is the oldest gospel and pretty much universally believed to be the first gospel, the ministry of Jesus begins in a particular kind of way. It begins with him gathering around him a group of disciples. And so today what we want to do is we want to look at this whole phenomenon of disciples. Here's the passage that we, uh, by the way, let's just stop for a second and think about it. What do, you, what do you know? What have you been taught? What have you learned about the disciples? Let's just make a little collage. What's something you know about the disciples? Twelve of them. Not 13, not 11, not 52, 12 of them. Okay. What else? Yeah. Fishermen, tax collectors, coming from different walks of life. What else do we know? Personally chosen by Jesus. Follow me. Come and see. Dropped everything. That's about what we're seeing. Yeah, dropped everything. Even left the father in the boat going, wait a minute. <laughs> Stole my crew. Yeah. Uh, what else? What? All men. We're going to look at that. Okay. <laughs> Not only different vocations, but a lot of them were marginalized by society. Yeah. Marginalized by society. Okay. A lot of research the last few decades about that. Okay. Anything else? All right, let's look, because we're going to get the snapshot, and then we're going to take a look in a broader sense about how much of our uh, traditional Sunday school lessons really kind of hold water. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, his brother Andrew, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Makes sense. Jesus said to them, follow me, I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. He went a little further. He saw James, son of Zebedee, his brother John. They were in the boat mending their nets. Immediately he called them, 
and they left their father Zebedee, and I just love this image. <laughs> Wait, what's going on? With the hired men and followed him. Okay, that's pretty much ring true with what we kind of been taught Sunday School 101. Okay. Now, according to Mark, here's what we kind of get out of that. That's sort of the traditional image. Jesus just shows up one day, apparently walks up to total strangers, and he asks them to drop everything and follow me. It's exactly what they do. They drop everything. They walk away from their former lives, their relationships. There's, there's Papa in the, in the boat, uh, and they follow Jesus, which makes me feel guilty because I would not have done that, would you? You know, just cold turkey. Walk up one day, some guy you've never seen. Follow me. Okay, sure thing. Here we go. Very few of us would probably have done that. So there's you know, a little guilt there. Now, another traditional understanding we've come to in the last few decades in particular, and some particular scholars have contributed to this, is that Jesus would have picked at least the bulk of his disciples from a, the bottom tiers of society, right? Now, uh, who's the tax collector? Matthew? Maybe also uh, Levi? Uh, Matthew, the tax collector, probably would have not been that. But the idea we get is that mostly Jesus, you know, common fisher folk, these are salt of the earth kind of people. That there were, in fact, only 12 of them, that they are, in fact, all men. This is the stereotype. That we know their names, right? You learn their names in Sunday school. This is not a test. I will not ask you, okay? <laughs> but uh, little kids have been taught to recite that. Those little guys that were up here, they can probably recite it. Uh, that these 12 then went to, on to become the 12 apostles. Is that kind of the composite that we have? Traditional snapshot, okay. Here's the problem. With everything on that list, it is at best incomplete, misleading, or some of it is just flat wrong, okay? But it is the traditional kind of images that we kind of bring to us uh, because, for one thing, we're only looking at one passage, and are there others? Yes, and we're going to look at those today. Uh, so the, pic the picture we get when we look at it a whole is, is it's more subtle. It is more nuanced. It's not that necessarily what, what Matt Mark says is wrong, but we have to interpret what Mark says in light of a bigger picture, and that's the picture we want to paint today. Um, again, the most common view is the one based on Mark. Uh, the issue, though, is, is that Mark is not the only narrative. There are, in fact, at least three and we want to look at all three. We've seen one. We need to look at the other two. Um, the other two are found in the Gospel of John, which we've alluded to. But for just a few moments, we want to kind of lift up again and look at a little bit more detail. And then we want to look at a passage we've not looked at, which is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. Um, these other two stories paint a picture that is significantly different from Mark, at least as Mark has been traditionally interpreted. I think once you look at the other two stories, you can reread Mark and go, oh, okay, that Mark does not mean what I first thought it meant. What we want to do, I think, is to put Mark in light of these other stories and kind of look at them together. So in John, as you remember, we looked at this, what, two or three weeks ago, that John lets us know in chapter 1 and chapter 3, gives us some insights, which, which looks like into a period of time Jesus was active, but before he went up to Galilee. Matter of fact, the early church fathers said that's how they interpreted it too. That uh, Mark starts the story with the rest of John. Jesus goes north. The Gospel of John has several stories about a period of time before that. Remember Bethany beyond the Jordan and the place called Anon. We have six stories altogether. 
Um, in the John passage, though, Jesus invites two of John's disciples to come and see. Uh, they then spend, John says, an entire day with Jesus. Jesus gives the invitation, come and see, and they do. They come, they go home with him, they talk, they get to know him, a little bit about him. Uh, and then this story appears in this larger narrative of six stories where it appears that John and Jesus and the disciples are all in the same area at the same time, and they're all interacting with each other. Which is to say that some of the disciples, at least these, Jesus would not have been unknown. He would have known them, they would have known him. Um, and from this extended experience, John says, it's from this that they become disciples. So in John, it's not that Jesus walks up to strangers and says, drop everything, follow me. There's a relationship and there's some interaction. Um, and these disciples then seem to stay within the, the larger John-Jesus movement, which at least at the beginning does seem to be kind of a combined movement. Uh, of course, they're going to move from, Jesus, from John to Jesus, uh, particularly when John is then a, uh, arrested. They're going to go north of Jesus to the Galilee. Luke's gospel is absolutely fascinating. Uh, this is one of those stories you've probably read Luke more than once. And it's one of these things you're just reading along, and if you're not paying attention, there's a lot of really important things being said. It's very easy to skip over, so we want to kind of look at that. According to Luke, like John, there's a period of time that's kind of unaccounted for by Mark. This period of time is not down south, but is actually up in the Galilee. And it's actually a period of time when Jesus is active in his ministry, but before he actually calls a disciple. So in Mark, we start with calling the disciples. In Luke, no. Jesus is active. He's doing ministry for a period of time. Then he makes a transition and he calls the disciples. That's kind of what we look at. It's in Luke 4. begins with these verses. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee. And a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. Now, it's at this point that Luke then begins to share some very interesting information. Uh, we began to teach new synagogues and was praised by everyone. Luke is going to take the entire remainder of chapter 4 and the opening verses of chapter 5 to narrate a period of time when the disciples are nowhere to be seen, but Jesus is all over the map. He's in Galilee. He's in Judea. He's going from town to town. He's teaching. He's healing. He's doing all these things that we're kind of familiar with. Verse 14, he starts out with his activity in Galilee. 15, we're told that he teaches at various synagogues. Now, these little towns are likely to have one synagogue each, which tells you what? We don't know where they are, but he's moving around different places, different synagogues, different towns. He then travels 20 miles away to his hometown of Nazareth. He delivers a sermon there. That's the story that Luke really wants you to hear because he spends the bulk of chapter 4. Uh, where he opens up the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, reads it, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, sits down, today this is fulfilled even in your hearing. He then travels back to Capernaum, and it, we're going to get several stories of what happens at Capernaum. He, first of all, uh, teaches in Capernaum. Uh, he performs an exorcism in the synagogue of Capernaum. He goes to Simon Peter's house, which Matthew indicates may be the place that Jesus is staying while he's in Capernaum. We're not sure about that, but it kind of hints that way. He heals Simon's mother-in-law. He performs numerous other healings in Capernaum. He's chased by crowds in Galilee. 
um, the fact that he's healing, people are kind of pressing about that. He leaves Galilee, travels all the way down to Judah. This is one of those places where traditionally we've understood that Jesus was just active in Galilee. Only goes to Judah at the end of his ministry, but John says he went back and forth. This is one of those places where Luke agrees. Jesus is actually moving back and forth. He preaches at the synagogues, plural, in Judea. So more than one, we just don't know where they are. He goes back north to the Sea of Galilee. He preaches to the crowds there in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. And I'm going to get closer and closer to this thing is dying. Only then, after all of this stuff, do we find Jesus calling his disciples. I never realized that, had y'all? And that's an extensive period of activity that Jesus is doing a wide variety of things. No disciples are being mentioned. And then what happens at the end of this is we now have uh, Luke's version. It's not word for word the same. But it's Luke's version of the same story that was in Mark. Luke 5, verses 4 through 10. When finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water, let down your nets for the catch. Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching people. Same story. Same people. Slightly different versions. Now, most historians would find that Luke's narrative and John's narrative probably makes more plausible sense than the one in Mark, at least as Mark has been traditionally interpreted. If you interpret that Jesus just walks up to strangers and says, follow, and they do, that presents all kinds of questions you just have to kind of deal with. But if, in fact, there was an extended period of time, if Jesus is known, if he's been busy, and now, you, now you walk up to somebody and say, follow me, they're going to know what follow me means. They're going to understand that. And so many scholars would say this one probably doesn't make more sense. Now, here's a possible reconstruction. Again, this is, this is a harmony. It's just a possibility that, that some people throw out. But there is a way that you can actually harmonize the three versions. In this scenario, you got this core of disciples that originally started out with John the Baptist. Jesus is a part of that movement. They all know each other. At some point, they move from being centered on John to being centered in Jesus. This is all before John is arrested. Uh, they were with him. They spent time together. Um, John's arrested. And when John's arrested, Jesus makes the decision to go to Galilee. And some of the disciples then would go with him. If you then follow Luke, the disciples do not immediately join Jesus in traveling around doing the ministry. What are they doing instead? According to Mark and Luke. Fishing. They go back to the work that they were doing before. Um, remain in Capernaum and they're fishermen at that place. Jesus is active during this period. We don't have any mention of the disciples whatsoever. At some point, for a reason we're not told, Jesus makes a decision. The decision is to bring to an end the period when he's traveling by himself. He returns to Capernaum. He returns to the Sea of Galilee. And it looks like what he does first is he picks up with the disciples he had had down south. And he's going to grab them. And then very quickly, he's going to grab uh, Matthew, the tax collector, also in Capernaum. And he begins to build. Make sense? begins to build a country. We don't know that that's what happened, but that's one kind of way that kind of makes sense. And at this point, we begin to get stories of the calling of various disciples from various walks of life. But it appears that the core, if you factor John in, the core is the group that was with him down south 
augmented by a larger group now that's going to be running. Call stories also give us a window into the socioeconomic world that this is happening in. And it, it, this part belies a little bit what some people have been saying in, in publications. If you actually look at the stories, it does not look like at least the inner core of the disciples are taken from the poorest of poor. Because that's one of the traditions that you kind of get out there. Jesus picked his disciples from the bottom of the heap. Uh, well, when you begin to look at the story, that begins to take some interesting turns. According to the narratives, these fishermen actually have more than one boat. Now, that does not put you at the bottom of the society. If you have a boat, you're not at the bottom of society. If you have two or more boats, the other thing is, and you probably heard it there, do you remember the reference to hired help? If you got hired help, you're not at subsistence level. You're not at the bottom. What would we call this in America today? Small business. Okay, It's exactly what it appears to be. The archaeology of Capernaum actually reinforces this. And if you've been to Capernaum, you've actually walked all this stuff. It is not a place of poverty. There are extensive harbors through this area. Some of you remember you kind of walk through them. Uh, if you go up a little bit on the bank, because the, the lake used to be a little bit higher, you actually can see the remnants of fish holding tanks and holding ponds. Now, if you're going to fish for your dinner, you don't need a holding tank. Why would you have holding tanks? Yeah, you're going to sell the fish. Okay, You're going to catch them, put them in there, you're going to hold them, you're going to bring them to market. We have salting facilities. What do you do that for? Preserve the fish. And we have processing centers to make that s ugly, gross stuff that Romans love, fish sauce, which is basically rotted fish. Uh, we find a large number here of millstones for grinding wheat. We find wine presses and we find olive presses. Here are some of the ones at Capernaum. Most of the good ones are in museums. Okay. Are you beginning to get an image of what Capernaum looked like? It's not a poor subsistence level little village. Um, it's something different. And they're not living hand to mouth. We get an image from all the archaeology that what we have is a center of, of industry and commerce. Remember what do we have running north and south, east and west of this area? Major Roman roads and caravans. Galilee is a bread basket. It's also a fish basket. And it's a place where you can make a living by farming and by fishing and getting this stuff. And what do you want to do with it? You want to sell it. And so the, the, the image we're getting now is that that's much more likely what's really going on here. Uh, the fishing is not for personal consumption but to export, to sell to the Roman Empire, and also to Herod Antipas, and you would use the Roman structure to do that. And the evidence indicates, by the way, one of the, one of the things they found in Capernaum when they excavated it was hordes of coins. Make sense? Hordes. Big baskets full of coins. Now what does that tell you about the community? Yeah, they have some discretionary wealth that they've hidden, that when it's destroyed later by the Romans, uh, kind of got trapped there. This is a family business. And it's a family business with their own boats and the family business employing hired men. This is who Jesus recruits. These are the guys that were with him down south. And John says, oh, by the way, all these guys also came from the same town, Bethsaida. So Jesus knows them. He interacts with them. Um, 
It also appears that the makeup of the disciples is a little more complicated and nuanced than you and I maybe were taught in Sunday school. It ain't just 12 guys, okay? Uh, for one thing, you start picking up the name disciples and the math doesn't work. How many named disciples are there? Over 20. And that's even in the list of the 12 disciples. <laughs> and then we have other disciples that get named. And then we get women, but it gets real complicated real quick. So that's what we want to look at. The Gospels indicate that at times, Jesus was not traveling with 12. He was traveling with a very large contingent. Um, and the numbers sometimes were very large. For example, here's two stories from Luke. He came down with them and stood at a level place and a great crowd of his disciples. Well, maybe they just mean that everybody with him, Luke's just calling his disciples, no, and a great multitude of people. So Luke wants us to understand that Jesus is traveling with a large undisclosed number, but it's probably not 12. It's probably north of there a little bit. A great crowd of disciples and other groups following him. Another place in Luke 19, remember the Palm Sunday? As Jesus comes in town, I never really noticed this until recently. He's approaching the path down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to praise God joyfully. Now, Luke's real careful to use different language for disciple and for crowd. There's a crowd with Jesus too, but what he's saying is that Jesus rolls into town with more than just 12 people. Do you remember the story in Luke where Jesus sends out the disciples, 70 of them, two by two. Now, one of the possibilities is, is this is just symbolism because there's a story with Moses that, you know, God put all that work on Moses and Moses one day just had had it. What do you think before he sends his disciples out two by two, Jesus' ministry looked like without disciples and looked like with disciples? What was the difference? All of the evidence indicates it's exactly the same. The evidence indicates that what Jesus does is he recruits disciples to help him do what he was already doing and to empower them to do it. In other words, multiply the ministry. And it's interesting because one of the really neat stories is this one. We want to look at it. Uh, now, one possibility is we have Moses symbolism because there is a story where Moses is overworked and he basically gripes to God. Moses does that a lot. He got a close relationship with God. <laughs> don't call me. I can't speak. You know, I don't want to. Anyway. Uh, and so God says, well, get 70 elders. And I will put a portion of my spirit on them, and they'll assist you. So 70 then becomes a symbolic number. Don't hang with the number, but would it also make sense, plausible-wise, that Jesus might, A, have a group he's working with, and B, he might actually want to put training wheels on them and send them out to see if they've got the picture. And that's what this story is about. Behind the story appears to be that Jesus has got a group. It's bigger than the 12. And he sends them out. And by the way, there's more than one story. There's three or four stories of this. He sends them out and they do stuff and they come back and they report. And sometimes they just gripe and complain. You know, some, we met some guy out there who was casting out demons in your name. How dare he? And Jesus says, hey, if he's not against us, he's for us. Okay. So there's several stories with that out there. Healing. Jesus is healing. They're healing. Jesus is teaching, they're teaching. Uh, Jesus does symbolic acts, they do symbolic acts. In the book of Acts, one of the things Luke will do is he paints the disciples clearly as doing exactly what Jesus did and expanding the ministry, multiplying the ministry. But even in the Gospels, you get that same sense. 
we have multiple stories that tell us that there are more than 12, and we actually know who some of them are. Have you ever this guy called Levi? He's not in any of the four lists of 12 in the New Testament. But we have a call story where Jesus calls him to be a disciple. Now, there's a creative way you can deal with that. We'll talk about it in a second. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, another Judas. It's like, you know, half the women in first century Palestine have the same name. Remember? What's the name? Mary, some form of Mary. Mary, Mary Omni, Miriam, you know, some form of that. Uh, Judas, Jesus, James, you know, th those few names get created around. Nathaniel. Now we got 15, which is a bit of an issue. Uh, John's Gospel adds two more disciples who only show up at the burial. Remember Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus? Joseph of Arimathea is a, John says, secret disciple. Now, why would you want to be a secret disciple? Might it have something to do with the fact that he's on the Sanhedrin that rules the country? Maybe he doesn't want to run that up the radar real quick. Nicodemus, again, a wealthy ruler of the people. This is the Nicodemus back in the early part of John uh, who comes to Jesus at night. Acts adds two more. This is a fa fascinating story. We get Matthias, and we get Joseph, Barsabbas, and he even has a third name. Uh, the story is about we have 12 disciples and we, we lose one. Remember that story? Who did we lose? Judas. Depending on the story, he either hangs himself or throws himself off a cliff. Or you want to combine them, he hangs himself, the rope breaks, he throws himself off a cliff. Uh, <laughs> but they got, they got to replace it because you can't have 11. It's really important to have 12. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. Here's the criteria in Luke. By the way, this is really a, a punch in the gut of the Apostle Paul. By this definition of apostle, Paul is not an apostle, which is one of the reasons Paul has some issues with some of these people. Uh, we want men, right? No women need apply. We want men who have accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus went out and among us. Well, how far back are we going to go? Beginning with the baptism of John. You need not apply to be one of the 12 unless you're male, and we can't have picked you up somewhere along the way. You got it? From the very, very beginning. Until the day he was taken up from us, which means if you flaked out somewhere along the way, can you apply? Because we're going to see a story in a minute that some of Jesus' disciples left him because he got a little controversial for him, and he, they just bailed on him, okay? Now, apparently these are disciples. They're with Jesus from the very beginning, although they have never been mentioned anywhere in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I find that interesting, don't you? Two disciples, we know their names, they're there from the beginning, but they're not on any list. Many scholars have said this, it, it does appear that the number 12 appear, appears to be more significant and important than who actually makes the list. We want to look at that just for a second. There are four lists of the 12 in the New Testament. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. Matthew follows Mark real close. Luke and Acts are written by who? Both by Luke. Those lists don't even agree, which is interesting. <laughs> Luke has two lists. They don't agree with each other. We don't have John. A list in John. Why would that be? Anybody know? John does not like the 12, nor does Paul. They have issues. They struggle back and forth. Uh, as a matter of fact, John's the one who keeps naming others. As a matter of fact, the whole, remember the story of Peter, thou art Peter upon this rock, I'll build my church. 
John puts that story so that that authority is not given to Peter, it's given to the disciples as a whole. Not even 12, the disciples as a whole kind of thing. So different, different takes on it. These lists do not agree on who's included. Most of the names are consistent. About nine of them are consistent. Others are not. Three of the names seem to vary depending on what your source is. Now, there is a very creative way to deal with this. If you want 12 out of 15, this is called the new math, okay? <laughs> Matthew, who's a tax collector, must be Levi, who was a tax collector, okay? Done. Bartholomew must be Nathaniel, and Thaddeus must be Judas, who's not Iscariot. Now, nowhere in the New Testament does it say any of that. But if you do that, you got four lists and you get 12 disciples, okay? Now, there's another possibility. They're different lists. Meaning, for example, that it's possible that who's on the list may have varied over time. We lost Judas, didn't we? Maybe we lost some others. Maybe we added some. Maybe over a three-year period, it's not a consistent same group of 12. Possibly, there's a core of 12 that's very important, but there may be, the, the borders may be a little permeous there. John's Gospel lets us know that there were at least once when Jesus said something that was so offensive that some of his disciples simply bailed on him. Uh, you love this number, 666. Okay. Because of this, this is where Jesus is in the, the, you know, talking about his body and his blood in the Gospel of John. Many of the disciples turned back, no longer went about with him. They simply bailed. Just Jesus had gone too far. Another indicator of the importance we've already looked at, and that is simply that when you lose one, you have to elect another. Doesn't matter who it is, as long as it's a male. And they've been there since the beginning. We elect who? Matthias. He's such a winner, we never hear about him again, ever. <laughs> but we have 12, and that seems to be what's important. The number 12 is maintained. But the one we want to spend a little time at this morning is the one that probably is the most uh, surprising to some people, maybe not if you've done some reading in this area. Uh, first century would have really would have stood out to many people in this culture is as Jesus is traveling with a group of people, they're not all men. And if you know anything about Islamic culture to this day, Islamic culture still preserves the Near Eastern sort of societal stuff. A woman is never to be with a man who's not what? Yeah, father, brother, husband, very close, and definitely will not touch him. You cannot shake their hand. Okay, what we get when we look at the four Gospels is it's not just one or two women. Actually, if you total the named women and you total the named men, there are almost as many named women as there are men. The delta is too interesting. And they seem to have played a very central role in the movement, not based on one scripture, but multiple scripture. And they appear to be disciples. And what the one that <coughs> really freaks really well, we don't know what her name is at all, but she's a Samaritan woman, remember? She goes out and she just preaches, but we don't know what her name is. Converted her whole town. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She is, by definition, by the way, not just a disciple, She's the first apostle. Because the apostle is the one who, 
And the other, remember who the other female apostle was? Mary Magdalene. The apostle, the early church says she's the apostle to the apostles. Jesus reveals himself to her and she goes, tells the disciples who absolutely believe her instantly, right? No, different story. <laughs> this is called the Mark and Bombshell, by the way. Uh, the term scholars use. It's the Mark and Bombshell because as you read the Gospel of Mark, it's only 16 chapters long. Mark's telling his story and essentially women are nowhere to be found until we get to Jesus on the cross and he dies. And then Mark just sort of lobs a grenade right in the middle of the story. This is it. There were also women looking on from a distance. You're going, wait a minute. Where did they come from? You know. Did they just walk up? No, Mark has a lot to say about them. Among them, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph. Now, Mary the mother of Jesus, Jesus had four brothers of whom James is one and Joseph is one, but this is probably, most scholars say, not the same person. These are all common names. So this is not family of Jesus, but Mary Magdalene, Mary, and Salome. They used to follow him and provided for him when he was in Galilee. There were many other women who had come with him up to Jerusalem. Now it's down in our map, but it's up because it's uphill. They're with him in, they're with him in Galilee. Okay, so let's run this. These women, of which there are many, although we only get three named, they're with Jesus when he's in Galilee. They provided for him. We want to look at that term when he was there. They came with him when he journeyed to Jerusalem. They're present at the crucifixion, the burial, and are they there at the resurrection story? Indeed, they are. It is common in some circles, and you will still find books published in 2014 that say this, that all the disciples are male in the presence of any women. They must be the, I love it, women's auxiliary. <laughs> Which is to say, they're not disciples. They're, they're you know, they're followers own camp followers, and they're helping out. What would they be doing, by the way? Food, prep, cooking, do the laundry, keep the guys clean. You know. uh, but the inference here is that they're not disciples, and there's still books being said this. Interestingly, if you go to the oldest source, which is the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark adds one more word, and it's the word, it's the key descriptor of the women. They follow Jesus. Now, in the Greek, the word that Mark uses for the women and the word that Mark uses for the men, both of which are translated to follower, do you think they're two different words or one? It's exactly the same word, okay? Same. Mark does not make any kind of distinction here. The clear inference is that for Mark's gospel, although he just kind of drops a story in and we don't have a lot of the backstory except this, this little insight here, the women are followers of Jesus. They're, in fact, disciples. There is no distinction made in the language. And by the way, Mark's got lots of language he could use to describe a women's auxiliary. The word he chooses is the same one he uses for the men. Go over to Luke. An entirely different story. This is not, this is not two versions of the same story. These are two separate, independent stories, which is what you really want. Uh, we get another snapshot. This time it's of the women not at the feet of the cross, but back up in Galilee before Jesus came south. Luke 8. Jesus went through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. And guess what? Some women at this point. Mary called Magdalene, Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Cusa, 
This is one of the ruling elites of the country. Herod Stewart, his wife is there, and Susanna, many others, who provided for them out of their resources. The word in Greek for resources clearly implies money. Okay, uh, So Luke confirms that there's many women who follow Jesus. He clearly indicates that the support they gave is not something of an auxiliary movement. They're financing the ministry. How the 12 guys, or even more, get by with just running around teaching and preaching? How do they eat? Who pays the bills? Where does the money come from? One of the things we know about Mary Magdalene is that she was a woman of immense wealth. Well, you've got Susanna, or the, the woman who is Cusa's wife, the steward's wife. She's a person of substance, too. Luke gives us the name of two more women, Joanna and Susanna. Now we have five women who are named. In at least two stories, Jesus is depicted as having deep theological discussions with women. Uh, we've already referenced these, but the woman at the well, one of the deepest theological discussions, Gospel John, and Mary of Bethany of Mary Magdalene. Again, profound theological discussion as Lazarus is in the grave and discussing Jesus' ministry. Both of these appear to be examples of people who, quote, follow Jesus, but do not literally, physically walk around with him. It appears, for example, that Mary and Martha have a house in Bethany, and it's kind of a home base for Jesus when he comes to Jerusalem. Remember the, the Holy Week story? Where does Jesus go every single night? Where is he anointed? Always to Bethany, always to the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. You know, but they're not, for the, here's what we can tell, we don't have any story. We have several stories of Mary and Martha, but none of them traveling with him. The woman at the well is, as we said, more than a disciple. She's an apostle, as is Mary Magdalene. They, uh, disciple is one who follows. Do you remember what apostle means? Apostolus. To proclaim. Proclaim the message. What's the woman at the well do? What does Mary do on Easter morning? Proclaims the message out there. So the first two apostles were women, just for the record, okay? Uh, the result of these stories, you wind up nearly as many women as we do men. Not quite, but it gets close. Another unique feature is the use of the number 12. Uh, Luke indicates that this goes back to Jesus. There's this interesting little uh, statement in Luke 12. He called the disciples, chose 12. In other words, this seems to be a deliberate act. I got a bunch of disciples. The number 12 is important. He calls them apostles, which is the word for Luke. Um, even people like John and Paul, who don't like the 12, and would just assume they go away, make references to them because you can't ignore them because it's one of the very few things that we know. Why 12? Obviously, it would uh, symbolize the restoration in the first century. The number 12 only means one thing. 12 tribes of Israel, we don't have 12 tribes, but we want 12 tribes. We want them to come back. Uh, one story, it, it's a puzzling story. We don't know the details, but look at this. You and those who have stood by Jesus is speaking to the disciples. They're griping because they don't have any fringe benefits. The benefits package is not good enough. Uh, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. I confer on you, just as my father has conferred on me, a kingdom. You know, uh, salary's not great, but the retirement plan is really good, okay? <laughs> So that you may eat and drink at the table of my kingdom, you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, there's a lot of questions. We don't know what this means. But one thing it means is he connects the 12 disciples 
to the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay. It goes back to Jeremiah. You can read this, but Jeremiah made a promise. We've got two passages from Maccabees, and then we have a passage from Sirach. By the way, Maccabees and Sirach are written right before the time of Jesus, and both, and this is hundreds of years after the, they've come back from exile, and both passages say, we're waiting for the exiles to come home. What do you mean you're waiting for the exiles to come home? They came back since you. No, no, we're waiting. Did most of them ever come back? Got the ten lost tribes. You got all those people back in battle. There's still that hope. And Jesus shows up one day walking around with 12 people sending a very, very loud message. Um, the kingdom begins. The fulfillment of the restoration begins with Jesus, with his movement, with the disciples. Jesus is not only going to do this with the number 12, he's going to do it with every aspect of his ministry. So next week, we want to look at what are called the miracles, healing, exorcism, and other acts, and how this message of Jesus that begins with the disciples, he actually begins to embody that. And we're going to take two weeks on that uh, because the whole issue of miracles is a big one versus there's also lots of things that 